Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is Stories That Simply Unfold, Catherine Mansfield's Place in the Literary Canon by Christy Gunn, from the issue of January 6, 2023. Christy Gunn's latest collection of short stories is Infidelities, 2014. She is the author of My Catherine Mansfield Project, 2015, and is working with Delia de Sousa Correa on a Selected Letters of Catherine Mansfield. All Eyes on Catherine Mansfield After a hundred years of standing on the sidelines while the big players in literary modernism continue to shine, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, here she is at last, the short story writer. Only short story, she said. I should have done so much more. Coming in to take her place among them. Where is she, our missing contemporary? Elizabeth Bowen remarked in 1956. The perfection of the major pieces sets up anguish that there could not be more of them. That sentiment, it is true, has been echoed by writers from William Faulkner to Elizabeth Hardwick to Angela Carter, all of whom admired the form of narrative that Mansfield had made her own, one that takes the reader straight into the midst of a situation, a world, and simply lets events play out there, as though in real time. Catherine Mansfield liquefied the short story, V.S. Pritchett said. She cut out the introductions, the ways and means, which are simply barriers. But has her influence ever been fully acknowledged? It's that word only again, like another Mansfield word little, as though the sheer brevity of her genre, the apparent inconsequentiality of her themes, little stories like birds in cages, is how she described her work at the end of her life, hasn't served her literary status at all well. 
If only I could learn to work in the right way, she despaired, to write something that will be worthy. Yet, as our own age reminds us, those who have become used to describing themselves thus, not good enough, not important enough, not worthy, are no less due our attention. So how fitting it is that at a time in our cultural life when we have never been more engaged by seeking to include and listen to those who've up until now only ever been only, on the margins, at the edges, from someplace other, somewhere else, we might in 2023, the centenary of Manfield's death, look afresh at what this writer has to offer and why those feminine little stories, as Eliot called them, might not be so little after all. Of course, there are other reasons for Mansfield's near redaction from the Bloomsbury canon. She was born in 1888 and died 34 years later. She didn't have much time. And while those others were busy from the start, founding the project of their own significance, generating a body of work, reviews, essays, long-form novels, poems, that would establish their reputation, Mansfield spent too many days and weeks and years chasing money and a cure for the tuberculosis that would kill her. Not that she ever called her illness by that name, nor felt herself as an artist to be constrained by even the notion of invalidism. She was on the move constantly, unpacking and repacking her bags and books, between London and Paris, Switzerland, Italy, and the south of France, seeking peace and health while honing the form of prose Wolf acknowledged she was jealous of, coming at her subjects in glimpses and impressions, eschewing the big telling of traditional narrative, in favor of a story that simply unfolded. Manfield's aesthetic aims, deadly serious, didn't speak to the priorities of the ultra-modern young men, as she referred to Eliot, Joyce et al., fixated as they were on forging a new kind of language that would describe a traumatized and broken world. Her last collection of stories, The Garden Party, published in 1922, the year before she died, alongside Ulysses and the Wasteland, can easily be seen as a cluster of bright, insubstantial tales of family life and parties, hats and dresses, trips taken, domesticity, marriage, and motherhood. Eliot, who had admired her work, in the best sense slight, he said, changed his mind about reviewing the book just after her death. Yet those same slight stories, the minimum material, he went on, were doing things in their very scale and ordinariness other writers were only just beginning to get at. That broken world they articulate and gesture towards is already sitting there at the back of Manfield's fiction. It shadows her lawns and gardens, and nothing is ever as straightforward or feminine as it might seem. As Claire Harmon's wonderfully personal study shows, the reading experience that Mansfield has given us to bring us so inside the ordinariness of the story's life that we become part of its moral ambiguities and failures, its hypocrisies and deceits, is worth all the flummery of garden parties and Edwardian-seeming characters worrying about hats. Mansfield is our missing contemporary. Hers the fiction of the troubled present, the doubtful moment, the now. The work titled All Sorts of Lives, Catherine Mansfield and the Art of Risking Everything, comes off the back of a hard and fast few years of full-on Mansfield scholarship, study, and publication. That forward thinking of hers, later called existentialism, the mind that finds itself on the edge of things, in the words of the Mansfield scholar Vincent O'Sullivan, giving meaning to time, 
has been celebrated in a host of serious academic works, representations of the author's fiction and nonfiction, conferences, and a journal, Catherine Mansfield Studies, established in 2009. There is a span of 24 years between Catherine Mansfield's first story, published in a school magazine in 1898, and her last, in June 1922, wrote the editors of the collected fiction of Catherine Mansfield, O'Sullivan and Jerry Kimber, on its publication by Edinburgh University Press in 2012. Kimber had by then established the International Catherine Mansfield Society and instigated the impressive program of bringing all of Mansfield's literary output into one series. After the fiction came scholarly editions of The Poetry and Critical Writings, the diaries, the early years, and more. All of this is founded on earlier work, the journals and collected letters, edited by Margaret Scott and O'Sullivan, that had started coming out in the 1980s, along with critical studies by a host of scholars, including Angela Smith, Sidney Jane Kaplan, and Janet Wilson, all of whom have been establishing the modernist writer's significance on the literary world stage, resting her back from her widower, the critic John Middleton Murray, and the image he had promoted immediately after her death of a way-faced consumptive penning female stories for a female market. I write with acid, Manfield says in a letter to her brother-in-law, Richard Murray. There mustn't be one single word out of place, or one word that could be taken out. Harmon's Mansfield, for sure, is the one who is dead certain about what she's doing. Shall I be able to express one day my love of work? She quotes in her opening pages. My desire to be a better writer, my longing to take greater pains, and the passion I feel. It takes the place of religion. It is my religion. Her approach to the life, an innovative combination of factual detail and close reading of favorite stories, gives us an artist who stops at nothing to live on her terms and write the kinds of stories that, as Harmon demonstrates, risk showing us things about culture and society that were ahead of her time and speak bang on to the concerns and debates of our present day. Her Mansfield is the feminist who pioneered fragmented narratives ahead of them all, not afraid to take on themes of male sexual predation and abuse. She is the critical theorist, counter-reading and writing the society around her as a cry against corruption, as Mansfield put it, who can see cinematically in split or shifting scenes. She is the insider, completely up-to-date, Harmon writes, who can take on the establishment and is close to people such as Bertrand Russell and the literary Chatelaine Ottiline Morel, while being the outsider who patrols its boundaries and walls. We've got, in the long run, to be our own teachers, she believed. She is also gender-fluid, gone every kind of hog, Wolf reported, and sexually emancipated, able to proclaim herself a very modern woman. The little colonial, who was already post-colonial, Mansfield was described by an earlier biographer, Anthony Alpers, as uprooted twice, with her experience of empire gained firsthand. Calling Great Britain home, she found herself a foreigner there after she left New Zealand in 1903. She was the civet cat about whom the Bloomsbury set gossiped and could never quite sum up. Catherine Mansfield, Lytton Strachey wondered, if that's her real name. Altogether, the free, indirect, narrative style she'd so developed and perfected, moving in and out of different points of view and situations without any apparent effort, 
can also be regarded as a metaphor for her life. Though she was on the margins of both English society and every artistic group she ever had contact with, she came to relish that position and gravitated naturally towards the most marginalized fictional form, Harmon writes. Born in New Zealand to a banker and his socialite wife, in love with a Maori princess as a schoolgirl at Queen's College in London, a bestseller under her belt by 1911, titled In a German Pension, that she later dismissed as not being anything like good enough, two critically acclaimed collections of short stories, called Bliss and the Garden Party, published across just two years. Mansfield packed a lot into her short life. Harmon takes a creative approach to her review of it. Zigzagging, she calls it, cutting across traditional chronology to pick out a set of themes. I'm going to look at ten of Catherine Mansfield's stories, she begins. Not a top ten, but a group representing aspects of her revolution and achievement. And off we go. From How Pearl Button Was Kidnapped, a story of race suspended culturally between two countries, two different kinds of people, to The Fly, where the twist in a story apparently about the First World War and masculinity is to do with uncovering feeling and the passage of time, a theme that runs throughout Mansfield's work. Each chapter takes a story favored by an enraptured reader, as Harmon describes herself, and gives it the kind of close attention that delivers up the richness and sophistication of Mansfield's special prose, showing its underlying preoccupations and motifs that, Harmon says, are crucially relevant to our own age. When it comes to Prelude, for example, the long story published by Wolf's Hogarth Press in 1918, Harmon traces in parallel the event of that fiction, a family moving from town to country that is also an existential account of life and death, contained within the space of a single day, and the events in real life from which it emerged, the death of Mansfield's brother in the trenches in France, and her sense of making for him in that story an elegy. All Sorts of Lives gives a portrait of an artist acutely aware of a kind of tragic knowledge, as Mansfield described it to Murray, that has to be there for her fiction to be serious. She is free from the burden of cause and effect, Harmon observes, and in her fiction, none of the epiphanies stop the action. There were enkindling conversations, meanwhile, between Wolfe and Mansfield that vivified them both as writers. Harmon is informative about this relationship, as she is about Mansfield in relation to the broader cultural environment, from Shakespeare and Chekhov to the Irereras and the New Zealand bush. One might ask for more of this. Harmon makes it clear in her introduction that this is a personal, subjective study, that enraptured reader, again, who wants to praise the writer. But all sorts of lives would have benefited from more explicitly bringing some of the influences denoted by her bibliography into the body of the work. The biographies by Alpers and Claire Tomlin figure in the introduction, but a range of scholars from whose groundbreaking work Harmon has clearly drawn are invisible here. That and a timeline to link the stories with chronology to draw together Harmon's this-way-and-that approach, would have enriched further a compelling and thoughtful study. The subtitle of this book, A Biography That Is Not Per Se a Biography, conveys its keynote. Risk is a fine word to include in the title of a literary study, especially in a publishing environment, more often than not averse to it. 
it seems all too appropriate for Mansfield, who strove to keep testing the limits of her ability and eschewing traditional methods of storytelling. Risk, risk anything, she wrote in her notebook. The results were significant. Harmon shows in her attentive, close readings how Mansfield risked representing otherness in all sorts of lives, well outside the charmed circle of Bloomsbury. Jeanne-Paul Parfancais, for example, as Harmon reminds us, is a creepy story of a failed writer with his sexualized imagination. Both Murray and her publisher wanted certain passages redacted for fear of losing sales and prestige. Mansfield defended the story as a breakthrough in her creative method. Writing that takes a reader inside someone else's experience, even if that someone is a pedophile, a misogynist, and a sexual predator, feels revolutionary, and strangely all the more so in the modern cultural climate. To really think about what it might be to be marginalized or left behind or ignored, to imagine so fully as Mansfield does what it is to be inside and outside, is to see that risk exploding at the level of the sentence. Prelude portrays a disillusioned wife and her blustering patriarchal husband, even as it portrays a woman with postnatal depression and a man who only wants her to be happy. To show both, to change, to let a story jump around in all kinds of directions so it's never about, but rather just is, that's risk. In the end, Claire Harmon's book does that thing that all good literary biographies do. It sends us straight back into the delicate, exhilarating, risking world of Mansfield's fiction and shows us how the greatest risk she took was in letting something little do so much. You have been listening to the TLS. This was Stories That Simply Unfold, Catherine Mansfield's Place in the Literary Canon by Christy Gunn from the issue of January 6, 2023. It was read by Adrian Walker for Noah. The article you just listened to was narrated by the team at Noah. Continue listening to more great journalism on the Noah app or by visiting newsoveraudio.com. Deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.